You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Psalm 3. Psalm 3. Last year, when the pandemic hit, We took a break from our study in Philippians to explore Psalms of Hope. Psalms of Hope. We looked at nine mountaintop passages where the psalmist cried out to the Lord and he discovered incredible hope in him. Here we are, a year later. And yes, things are lightening up a little bit, but look around you. The world is still dark, it's still hopelessly lost. And as we would expect it to be, because we know that as believers, the worst is not behind us. Not yet. We know that until Jesus returns, this world and all of its wickedness will continue to store up more and more and more wrath for itself. So as the pillow that I received last week and 2 Timothy 3.12 both affirm, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, will be persecuted. So nothing should surprise us, Christian. Rather, we should expect and prepare for persecution, knowing that if we are not persecuted and if the world loves us, then something is probably wrong. Something is probably off. So it also makes sense for us as we turn to Scripture for love and for comfort and for aid It also makes sense for us to find the Bible full of laments. Laments, passionate expressions of grief. A lament is a prayerful song of tears and trouble. It is a sorrowful cry and an appropriate response to suffering. Because laments express grief over sickness, suffering, and sin, while encouraging us to remain faithful and to place our trust in our Redeemer. Now that we have finished Philippians and the summer is ramping up, it seems appropriate for us to return our eyes back to the Psalms. And this time, rather than Psalms of hope, we will look at Psalms of trouble, these Psalms of lament. Now, we won't look at all of them, considering there are 62 of them in the Psalter, 62 lament Psalms. Out of 150 Psalms, 41% come from a place of pain, suffering, and loss. So in the coming weeks, we will focus our attention solely on Psalms 3 through 7. A few months ago, we looked at Psalms 1 and 2, so it makes sense for us to pick up right where we left off with Psalm 3. Also, these five Psalms form a unit. They were all written by David in times that that he faced extreme trial and heartbreak and pain in his life. They express trouble and trust, desperation and deliverance, suffering and salvation. And they give voice to the difficulty and the despair that we sometimes feel as believers. Concerning psalms like these, Steve Lawson writes, In the lament, the psalmist opens his heart honestly to God, a heart often filled with sadness, fear, and even anger. These highly emotionally charged songs record the psalmist's desperation for God's deliverance in the midst of his personal sufferings. Here is the psalmist's heart cry to God to be rescued in the day of extreme trouble and pain, end quote. So that's where we're going to be. Psalm 3 introduces us to this incredible genre of the lament psalm, and it sets the stage emotionally for the rest of the Psalter. Let me read it for you, starting with the superscription, which says, A Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, There is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. 
I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. Glenn Cunningham, the famous middle distance Olympian, once shared this story with Reader's Digest. He said, Africa's Victoria Falls produces a cloud of mist that is often heavy enough to impair visibility. While I was walking the path that skirts the gorge into which the Zambezi River tumbles, I noticed a sign on the rim, which I could not make out. Not wanting to miss whatever it might be noting, I, I slithered and slid towards the mud or through the mud to that very brink only to read the message, danger, crumbling edge. <laughs> there are often times when we suffer or we find ourselves in dangerous situations because of circumstances that are outside of our control. That happens all the time, be it because of someone else's sin or a misunderstanding or a tragic accident. We frequently suffer as victims of sin and circumstance. But then there are times, there are times when we find ourselves in dangerous situations and we know that it's our fault. We know that we're there because of our sin, because of something we said or something we did that we can always look back on and say, I shouldn't have done that. I regret making that sinful choice or that wrong decision. We would have never found ourselves on the precipice of danger had we not slithered and slid our way to the edge. And that's where David finds himself as he sits down to write this psalm, Psalm 3. Only here he's experiencing both. Here he is suffering thanks to someone else's sin, his son's sin, and his family's sin, and the sin of those in Israel. He's suffering for their sin, yes, but he is also suffering the consequences of his own sin. When trouble comes, it's hard enough to get a good night's sleep. But how do you find rest when you know it's your fault? How do you do that? How do you lay down and force yourself to go to sleep when you know that the trouble you're experiencing is in one way or another the direct result of your choices? Psalm 3 provides us with the answer. We'll start with five headings as we walk through this text. And then at the end, I would like to quickly go back and highlight the four steps that we need to take as we follow David's example for a better night's sleep. So that's where we're going. But first, we need to study David and learn a few lessons from his experience. And so Psalm 3 begins with our first heading, the king's problems. The king's problems. His problems begin with the superscription. And in this case, the heading tells us a lot about what David is going through. We're told that this is a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. I know you know the story, or at least part of it, but let me remind you of the circumstances that surround this particular family conflict. It all started back in 2 Samuel 11. Remember, David stayed home while the other kings went to the battlefield. And that's when he had an affair with Bathsheba. And he arranged then to have her husband murdered in order to cover up the pregnancy. Not one of his shining moments. Fast forward about a year, and Nathan, the prophet, finally calls him out on it. That's worth looking at. So let's go ahead and turn back there just for a few minutes. Let's go back to 2 Samuel. And we'll start in 2 Samuel 12. We won't read through the entire account, but it's worth hitting a few highlights here and there. 2 Samuel, chapter 12. Like I said, in chapter 11, David, he just keeps making mistake after mistake, piling sin upon sin with one sinful choice after another. But then he collapses into repentance as soon as Nathan makes it all public. But then, even then, Nathan, he has to make it clear to David that even though the Lord will forgive him and restore him, he still has to suffer the consequences for his sin. And those consequences will affect him for the rest of his life. Look at what he says, starting in verse 9. He says, Why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. 
Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. Wow. What an indictment. What a promise. So David is warned. He's still God's chosen king. That hasn't changed. But the consequences for his sin will linger on. They will affect his family. And a great evil will rise up against him from within his own household. Now at this point, it might look like God has written him off. That God has abandoned David. As if God is done with David. But remember, God knows everything absolutely everything, even the things that haven't happened yet. And just prior to all of this, back in chapter 7, he made a promise to David in the form of an everlasting covenant, much like the promise that he has made to you and me at the cross of Christ. He made an everlasting covenant, a binding promise with David, where he declared that David's son would sit on his throne and rule his kingdom forever. Speaking of Jesus, And while God is certainly angry in chapter 12, it's important to remember that God made this covenant with David before any of this happened. And yet he knew, he knew full well that it was going to happen. He knew that David would commit adultery and murder long before David would ever do so. So what does that mean? What does that mean? It means that God didn't withhold his blessing or take away his blessing from David because of his sin. And that's a really important thing for us to grasp. David's sin did not remove God's blessing from his life. That's really important for us to get. At the same time, God's blessing did not remove the consequences for his sin either. Thankfully, God never changes, and the same can be said for us. Your sin will not disqualify you from God's grace. It never will. It is grace after all. But while saving you from sin's penalty, God's grace won't always save you from sin's consequence. It won't. And ultimately, friends, even though that may sound scary, it may sound sad, you might think to yourself, I don't want to have to suffer the consequences for my sin. It's actually good news. It's good news for us. Because regardless of what we do, God will never, ever remove his love from the objects of his grace. Ever. If he has promised you salvation, if he has opened your eyes to the wonders of the cross, if he has called you out of darkness and set you apart into his kingdom of light to be an object of his own possession, if he has breathed new life into your soul and you have been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, then God will never say, enough is enough. He'll never say enough. He'll never say to himself, I'm going to take back my gift because I had no idea that this person would become so disgusting and so murderous. It'll never happen. Never happen. No, we suffer the consequences, but once the penalty has been paid for and dealt with at the cross, it is finished. It's finished. Because God knows everything. He knows everything, and he keeps every promise. And his son's sacrifice covers every sin. David knows that he has messed up big time here in this text. But he also knows that his sin will not remove God's promise and blessing from his life. Because God has never backed out of a promise. He's never lied. He's never deceived anyone. He's never changed his mind and said, you know, I said this, but I've changed my mind. Now I'm going to go do that. No, God knows everything. And when he makes a promise, he keeps it. However, be that as it may, what do we see in the life of David? It's just like you and me, isn't he? He keeps on sinning. And the consequences begin in chapter 13. That's where we are reintroduced to Absalom, David's third son. Ironically, his name means, my father is peace. In chapter 13, his half-brother, Amnon, rapes and disgraces his sister, Tamar. 
And sadly, David refuses to deal with it properly. Look at verses 21 and 22 of chapter 13. How does David deal with this situation? He says, when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. Okay, good start. Verse 22, but Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. So Amnon commits this terrible sin against his half-sister. And David, their father and the highest authority in the land, he then commits another sin by not dealing with it properly. He allows injustice to win. He gets angry, but that's it, allowing the crime to go unpunished. In response, Absalom plots a revenge killing against Amnon, carries it out, and then goes into hiding in his grandfather's place. The family connections are all over this story. Daytime soaps have nothing on the Old Testament. Absolutely nothing. This is a messed up family. And we're told at the end of chapter 13 and the beginning of chapter 14 that David's heart went out to Absalom. So he missed his son, and he wanted to see his son again. But while he overlooked one son's rape, he couldn't overlook another son's murder. So a lot happens in chapter 14. And after five years of separation, look at what happens in chapter 14, verse 33. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom, so he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. So father and son are reunited, and all is well in David's house at last, at least for a day, at least for a day, because immediately in the next verse of the next chapter, we see what Absalom is really up to. Look at chapter 15. We're told, after this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Absalom does this for four years years. This isn't just a, a weekend excursion for him. He does this consistently, day after day for four years. He goes from on the run to on the rise by flaunting his wealth, his bling, and then playing the politician at the steps of the courthouse. He's out there kissing babies, making promises, winning votes, and all the while he is undermining his father, the king, and his authority. And it works. Look at verse 6. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. What a phrase. He stole their hearts. Like a thief, he not only turned them against David, he turned them towards himself. He won their support. He earned their affections. He warmed their hearts. And in the end, he got what he wanted. Absalom takes 200 men to the city of Hebron, where David was crowned king just 35 years earlier. And it is no coincidence that he would go there to put feet to his conspiracy. Once at Hebron, he stands up and he publicly announces that he is the new king of Israel. Secret messengers that had already been dispersed throughout the 12 tribes. As soon as he makes his declaration, they hear a trumpet blast and they simultaneously shout within all of the land, Absalom is king at Hebron. And then, and then he slowly marches 20 miles back to Jerusalem, picking up more and more soldiers as he goes. Look at the end of verse 12. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. 
It kept increasing. Word gets back to David that Absalom is now on his way with a sizable army of his own people and, and that they're coming to kill him, including his close friend and trusted advisor, Ahithophel. And David has no choice but to run for his life, to leave everything behind. He must pack up what little he can, leave everything to, to rot and abandon his throne. He leaves Jerusalem, descends that holy hill, and crosses into the Kidron Valley, into the desert. This is a low point for David, a low point indeed. Look at verse 30 there in 2 Samuel 15. Look at how it's described, this moment for David. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot, with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. Here's David, king of Israel, God's king, God's choice. Not king of Israel because of royal birth or lineage. This is the man that God chose for the throne. Here he is barefoot, weeping, with his head covered as he slowly ascends the Mount of Olives. In chapter 16, a man named Shimei, who is still loyal to the house of Saul, comes out and starts cursing him and throwing stones at him, saying, Get out! Get out, you man of blood! You worthless man! The Lord has done this to you because you deserve it. Finally, look at verses 13 and 14 of chapter 16. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. And there he refreshed himself. And with that, we now have the time and the place for Psalm 3. Let's go back to our text. David is exhausted. He is worn out emotionally, physically, and even spiritually, as he and his ragtag bunch stop for a rest at the Jordan. He begins this psalm of lament with a setting, a time, and a place in his history, in his nation's history. This is a record of the king's problems. Look at the first couplet here, verses 1 and 2. He cries out, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. Notice the word many appears three times in these two verses. And again in verse 6, he says, Many thousands of people have set themselves against me all around. David is surrounded by enemies. And this is nothing new for David. In a way, he has been surrounded by enemies his entire life. All throughout his life, he's had his fair share of foes. As a youth, he had the lion and the bear. Goliath was his most famous foe. Saul was his most relentless foe. And the Philistines were his most consistent foe. But Absalom and the nation of Israel, they were his most painful foes. These were the foes that gave him the most heartbreak. To have his own son and his own nation rise up against him and cry out for his blood. Every other enemy pales in comparison. It's one thing to be hated by a few common enemies, by a few people that you tick off. That's to be expected, right? Has anyone here lived a particularly blessed life and has never made anyone else angry before? I didn't think so. It's one thing to expect it. It's one thing to just assume that there will be people out there that don't like you. That's just a part of life that we all grow up understanding and coming to grips with. It's one thing to be hated by a few common enemies and then come out the other side as a national hero. That's what happened with David. With each of these other enemies that he faced, he would come out better on the other side. But it's another thing altogether to be well-known and to be well hated so much that thousands of your countrymen, your own subjects, are out to kill you. In a very real sense, the entire world, his entire world, was crashing down around him as, as they were all out to get him. David is not paranoid in this passage. They are out to get him. 
In verse 1, his foes are joining together and they're rising up to resist him. He's in the minority as they band together and he loses more and more of his power and his influence and his authority within the kingdom. It wasn't that long ago that they were singing songs about him. They were saying that Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. He was beloved by all. But a new generation has risen up. And look at what we have here in verse 2. Look at what they're saying about him now. This is the deepest cut of all. They say, there is no salvation for him in God. This isn't so much a statement against God or against God's ability to rescue David. Rather, it's a personal attack against David himself. They're saying, look at him. Look at this barefoot king in exile. His own son is leading the rebellion. This adulterer, this murderer, this lousy leader and judge of Israel. He doesn't deserve the throne. He had it all. But look at him. Look at where he is now. He is public enemy number one. Surely God has abandoned this man. You see, David's enemies are certain that God is on their side. They know that God is on their side, not David's. It's a common mistake to kick someone while they're down. To say, you see, God isn't for them. If he was, he would, then that person would still be standing. They would be in a castle, not the countryside. Friends, that happens to us. It happens to all of us. God builds up and he breaks down constantly. And when, he, when, when we're broken down by our sin or the sin of someone else, the great temptation for us when we hear such ridicule is to believe it. That's the great temptation for us. Few attacks have the power to cripple a man of faith, like the arrogant assault of a believable lie. Charles Spurgeon, he captures the thrust of this verse well when he says, If all the trials which come from heaven, all the temptations which ascend from hell, and all the crosses which arise from earth could be mixed and pressed together, they would not make a trial so terrible as that which is contained in this verse. He adds, It is the most bitter of all afflictions to be led to fear that there is no help for us in God. Christian, even when you know that your suffering is the direct result of your sin or the sin of others, you cannot in that moment believe the lie. There is still help for you in God you can still turn to the Lord, even if it's your fault. There is still help for you in God. Such an incredible truth is worth pausing and thinking about. And so we have our first appearance of that word, Selah. It will show up 71 more times throughout the Psalter. And while all the ancient dictionaries from 4,000 years ago have gone the way of the buffalo, we believe that the word means to pause and consider to ask the question, what do you think about that? What do you think about that? Here, the imperfect man of God is surrounded by foes, and he is tempted to believe that, that their cries are true, that God has abandoned him, and that there is no help for him in God because of what he's done. Tell me, what do you think about that? These are the king's problems. And there are many of them. In verses 3 and 4, we see the king's protection. The king's protection. In spite of the overwhelming threats and accusations, look at David's resolve. He says, but, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. Note the emphatic adversative conjunction at the beginning of verse 3. But, but you, O Lord. This is where David takes his eyes off of his enemies, off of his trouble, off of himself, and he places the focus back where it belongs, on God himself. 
And as he focuses on God and makes much of God, all of a sudden his circumstances, his anxiety, his pain, it all falls back into perspective. His troubles don't go away, but his anxiety over his troubles do as his emotions level out. This is where his trust begins to rise. His faith finds its footing. And notice it all starts with God. It starts with God, not us. It's not about us and our faith or the measure of our faith. It's about the object of our faith. Christian, you can and should be confident in the Lord's protection, even when you know you don't deserve it. Not because of the measure of your faith, but because of the person of your faith is God himself. And that's exactly what David does. Here he remembers the Lord, and specifically four personal aspects of the Lord's protection. First, he says, the Lord is my shield. The Lord is my shield. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. He uses military language to describe the fullness of God's protection. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Notice, though, that this shield, it's not merely in front of him or beside him or behind him. Instead, he uses this intense preposition, about me. This is a shield that, that covers him from every angle, from every side. This is a 360 degree of defense. David knew that no shield could offer total protection and, and total resistance against the ridicule and, and the opposition that he was facing from a rebellious nation unless that shield was God himself. And so he reminds himself that nothing will reach him without the Lord allowing it to get there. Last year, we, we looked at Psalm 125 where the psalmist writes, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. In other words, those who rest in the hand of God, they have absolutely nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. Because they are like mountains surrounded by mountains. And nothing will get to them unless the Lord allows it to happen for his glory and for their good. David says, the Lord is my shield. Next, he says that the Lord is my significance. My significance, saying, you are a shield about me and my glory. My glory. We briefly looked at this word glory last week. It's the word kabod, meaning a large weight. And in the ancient world, a rich man's assets were measured by the weight of his wealth. The more gold and silver that he had, the more weight and glory he possessed. And that's where we get the phrase, even today, of throwing your weight around, throwing your glory around. A week prior to this prayer, David had more glory than anyone else in the kingdom. He was king of Israel, the head honcho, top dog. But how is he described now? Remember 2 Samuel 15, 30, but David went up in his ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went barefoot with his head covered. He's lost everything. Any claim to glory that he might have had apart from God is gone. So he reminds himself that his significance, his worth, his value, his weight, his glory is found only in his God. He then declares, the Lord is my strength. He says, my glory and the lifter of my head. That phrase, lifter of my head, it was a common phrase back then for someone being elevated to a position that is higher. This is getting a raise. This is getting a promotion. You will recall that when David was in, or not David, when Joseph was in prison, you remember that he told Pharaoh's cupbearer cup that in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. It's the same usage here. David is reminding himself and reminding God through this prayer that he is not strong enough to restore himself and that God is the only one who can make things right in the end. God's the only one. And then finally, David says, the Lord is my salvation. My salvation. Look at verse four. He says, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me 
from his holy hill, Selah. He reminds himself of the many times that he has cried out to the Lord, and the Lord answered his call. This is the king's protection. I like what Jared Mellinger writes in his book, A Bright Tomorrow, How to Face the Future Without Fear. At one point, he answers the question, what does God's promise protection mean? I love it when someone actually takes the time to answer obvious questions, don't you? What does God's promise protection mean? Let's crystallize it. Let's put it down into a definition. Here's his answer. He says, it means that the Lord will protect you from divine wrath. He will sustain your faith. He will keep you from stumbling. He will guard your soul. He will keep you safe from the evil one and thwart the purposes of all your enemies. When you call on him, he will answer you and rescue you. That's what it means. David comes to the same conclusion here in this text. And with that, it's time for another Selah. What do you think about that? Well, we've seen the king's problems and the king's protection. The next couplet describes the king's peace. The king's peace. Look at verses 5 and 6. He said, I lay down and slept. I awoke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in this month's featured resource, Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cure, which I highly recommend for all of you. It's available at the Book Nook for a massive discount. An excellent, excellent, excellent book. In this book, concerning these verses, here's what he had to say. He says, The great problem in life is, in a sense, how to lay oneself down to rest and sleep. I laid me down and slept, said the psalmist. Anybody can lie down, but the question is, can you sleep? The psalmist describes himself surrounded by enemies and by difficulties and trials. And his mighty testimony is that in spite of that, because of his trust in the Lord, he both laid him down and slept, and he awaked safe and sound in the morning. Why? Because the Lord was with him and looking after him. That's so true. So true. But let me point out two more divine activities from the text that will reinforce this sense of confident peace. In verse 5, he says, the Lord sustains me. The Lord sustains me. And then in verse 6, he says, the Lord secures me. He sustains me and he secures me. You see, when you commit your situation and your soul to the Lord... You can sleep knowing that the God of heaven and earth is your sustenance and your security. It's when we think that our situation is riding on us, that's when we toss and turn with agitation. But if we remind ourselves of our frailty and God's faithfulness, we can come to a place where we rely on him to take care of it and drift off into a good night's sleep. I remember Pastor John MacArthur saying a number of times in our classes and chapels that if the growth of his church, the holiness of its members, and the salvation of the lost was ultimately up to him, he would never sleep. But as it stands, he sleeps just fine. See, there is tremendous freedom and peace in the tranquility of trusting God. And not just knowing about him, but knowing him well enough to trust him in those most difficult times of life. That's the king's peace. Next, we have the king's prayer. The king's prayer. Look at verse 7. He cries, Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Now, maybe you're like a much younger Hans, and you're like, yes, we finally got to this part of the, of the verse. We finally got to this part of the passage. We're going to strike some enemies on the cheek and break some teeth. What does that mean? Well, we'll get to it. Notice he says, arise, O Lord. This is Moses' old battle cry. Whenever they would bring out the Ark of the Covenant 
for invading armies, he would shout on top of the mountain, Arise, O Lord, go before your people. And David says the same thing here. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. Rise up and rescue me. That much we understand. But what about all this cheek striking and teeth shattering? What's that all about? And more importantly, is it appropriate for us as New Covenant Christians to pray prayers like this today? I like what Dale Ralph Davis says about this verse. He says, some people get bent out of shape because the enemies are going to need an orthodontist. These people are nervous because this prayer asks God to get violent. He's right. We don't like the violence of God. We don't like violence in general, let alone the idea of God being violent. So how on earth could David pray a prayer like this? a prayer with such violence, and how do we handle such Holy Spirit-inspired prayers of violence as these, especially today in this overly sensitive day and age where the tone of your voice matters more than the truth of your words? How do we handle it? Well, first of all, we need to know that, that the psalmist is saying something here, and we need to know what he's saying. This phrase, to strike an enemy on the cheek, what is that all about? Well, it's a sign of shame. It was a high insult to smack somebody across the face in the ancient Near East, much like it is today. I don't think any of us would appreciate it if someone just walked up to us and slapped us across the face. It's a violation of your personal space, and it sends a message that says, you're not worthy of my respect. And what about the breaking of teeth here of the wicked? Well, everyone agrees that this phrase can only refer to one of two things. Either it refers to a vicious animal that is being made harmless by having its teeth removed, or it refers to an ancient custom where those who commit verbal crimes, which we could argue is, is much like what we see in verse 2, that those who commit verbal crimes, it was customary for them to have their teeth smashed. Given David's situation, both meanings work. It could be either or. But personally, I lean more towards the first possibility, that he's asking for their power to be removed. Just based on the sheer opposition and the many upon many upon many of all these people who are coming against him, some of them just confused, some of them caught up in the manipulation and the deception of Absalom and others. I don't believe that he's saying, smash all their teeth out because of their crimes against me and against you, God. I believe that he's asking for their power to be removed. When an animal tries to frighten their prey, they show their teeth. A snake without fangs is just a, a glorified worm. And verse 7 paints a vivid word picture of an enemy without power. So the question stands, is it appropriate for us to pray prayers like this about our enemies? I might surprise you by saying, yes. Yes, it is. And I'll give you two reasons. One, salvation is messy. And two, motivation is everything. Number one, salvation is messy. Look at David's situation here. He cannot be saved, vindicated, and delivered unless his enemies are eliminated, liquidated, and judged. This much is true, both in the past as well as in the future. If you fast forward to the prayer of the martyrs found in Revelation 6, you will discover that it's not a nice prayer. It's not nice. But it's one that demands judgment and vindication. Remember, God is not a Unitarian. And in the end, not everyone will be saved because salvation is messy. And number two, motivation is everything. Notice that David is not randomly asking God to hurt people. That's not his intent. That's not his motivation or his heart behind any of this. Instead, he's asking God to cripple his enemies, the ones who are actively pursuing him and trying to kill him. He's saying, God, cripple them so that they can't get to me and cause me harm. So in a new covenant sense, what would be the best prayer, the best outcome, the best scenario for us, those of us who are on this side of the cross? Well, Jesus said to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. And what better way for God to deliver you than for him to disarm your enemies and remove their bite by changing their hearts? It's 
So that's the best way to pray. That's the best outcome when overwhelmed with foes. If unbelievers are rising against you, friend, pray for their salvation. Pray for protection, yes, that God would defang them, that he would, that he would smash their bite, their teeth, their rising against you, that God would give you protection, yes, and that he would do that by changing their hearts, by ripping the blinders off of their eyes and showing them the glories of the gospel of Christ by moving them from being an enemy to a friend to maybe even a brother and sister in Christ. What could be better than that? And if, and if believers rise against you, heaven forbid, then pray for their sanctification. Again, pray that the bite would be removed. Pray that the Lord would work in their hearts and that he would use you to bring truth in love to that person, to restore them and bring them into a proper fellowship and relationship with you, the body of Christ, and God. But along with all of that, don't be afraid to pray with determination and power. Don't be afraid of passages like these. Don't shy away from God's righteous anger because there's still a place for his vengeance. A day is coming when Jesus himself will judge the world with violence. 2 Thessalonians 1.6 says, Indeed, God considers it just, he considers it right to repay with affliction those who afflict you. The real reason imprecatory prayers and requests like this one are good prayers for us to pray is because ultimately they leave vengeance in the hands of the Lord. They take vengeance out of our own hands and instead it puts them in the proper place. It puts them back with the Lord. It would be one thing for David to cry out, oh Lord, give me an opportunity to smash some teeth. Lord, give me that chance, that opportunity to defang my enemies. But that is not what David is saying. That's not how he prays. Instead, he says, Lord, you do it. You do it. Prayers like this one appear vengeful on the surface. But in truth, they are requests that let go of vengeance. They take it out of our hands, out of our, out of our manipulations, out of our situations and, and how we would deal with the problem. And instead, it hands it over to the Lord and says, God, you deal with it. Deal with it. You do this. So the Lord can then deal with the situation appropriately. That's the king's prayer. We've seen the king's problems, his protection, his peace, and his prayer. Finally, we end on a high note with the king's protection. Or, sorry, proclamation. The king's proclamation. Look at verse 8. He says, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people, Selah. Here at the end, David's heart is just bursting with praise. He knows that the Lord is the author and the finisher of every form of salvation and deliverance, whether it's physical or spiritual. And he can sleep well at night knowing that his God corners the market on salvation. Notice his mind wanders beyond his trouble and his suffering to the well-being of others. He says, your blessing be on your people. Selah. What do you think about that? It is as if he says, Lord, I'm not the only one in trouble. There are others who are in trouble, who are suffering, who are in pain, who are enduring trials and temptations of every kind. There are others that need you, Lord. They need your salvation. So Lord, would you bless your people? I know you want to. And with that, he closes the prayer of Psalm 3. Well, this isn't David's first rodeo. He's been in trouble before. He's had to rely on the Lord's protection before. Like we said, his life was full of trouble, many foes and many conflicts, more than you and I will likely ever experience. And I think that that's part of the reason why we, we have so much of his life preserved for us within Scripture so that we can see how just gracious and wonderful and loving and transcendent and lofty our God is and how his grace is endless and how he uses imperfect men and women like David and everyone else in scripture here to accomplish his glory, to, to display his glory throughout the thread and tapestry of human history. 
Most of us will never face this kind of opposition. And yet, David slept sustained and secure. Now that we know the story and the content of this psalm, I'd like to go back very quickly and highlight four steps that we need to take as we follow David's example for a better night's sleep. We'll skip the description of David's problems in the first two verses. Instead, think about your problems. Think about the things that are keeping you up at night. Think about those things and jump straight to the prescription found in the rest of the psalm. Here are four spiritual steps to a better night's sleep. Four things you can do. Number one, when you are overwhelmed, remember your protector. Remember your protector. That's what David did in verses three and four. And that's exactly what we must do when we find ourselves surrounded. We must remember that he is our shield, our significance, our strength, and our savior. That when we call on him, he will answer us and he will rescue us because he has in the past and he always will. So when you are overwhelmed, remember who your protector is. Number two, rest in peace. Rest in peace. Force yourself to lay down and sleep in the perfect rest and confidence that God provides. Remind yourself that the Lord sustains you and secures you. And even if many thousands of people were to come against you and cry out for your blood, the odds are still in your favor. Because God plus one equals a majority. And he won't let anything get to you that isn't for his glory and your good. So when you are overwhelmed, remember your protector. Rest in peace. Number three, raise your petition. Raise your petition. Make your requests be known to God. And let the Psalms inform your prayers. Knowing that when someone is clearly out to get you, when someone is clearly out to do you harm, it is okay to cry out to the God that you serve, that you love, that has protected you in the past. It's okay to cry out to him for protection and to ask him to remove their power and put them to shame. And then finally, number four, when you are overwhelmed, rejoice in praise. Rejoice in praise because salvation belongs to the Lord and he will bless his people. Even if your troubles have just begun like David's, notice he is on the front end of this thing. He has just lost his kingdom. He's barefoot, weeping, head covered. He is climbing the Mount of Olives. He is surrounded by a whole bunch of other sad people who are weeping and wailing and, are, and have their heads covered as well. But he's at the beginning of this thing. He doesn't know what's next. He doesn't know how long this is going to last. He's just lost everything. Even if you were at the beginning of your troubles like David, you can rejoice with praise like he does because you know that your God will save you and he will bless you in the end. So the next time you lay down but you can't sleep and all the adrenaline is rushing to your stomach and you've, you've lost control over the synaptic relays of your brain and you don't know how things are gonna turn out because this person is against you and that person is against you, here's what you need to do. It's simple, Christian. Get out of bed. Find a private place and remember your protector. Rest in peace. Raise your petition and rejoice in praise. Then go back to bed. Lay down and sleep. In the book, Flags of Our Fathers, James Bradley writes about that famous photo of the Marines raising the American flag in Iwo Jima in 1945. It appeared in numerous publications, including a Texas newspaper that had been picked up by Ed Block, a serviceman who was home on leave from the Air Force. His mother, Belle, walked by and glanced at the picture. And in that moment, she pointed at the Marine thrusting the pole into the ground, and she said, that's your brother, Harlan. Ed refused to believe her, pointing out that there was no side view. It was just the back of a Marine that they didn't even know if Harlan was in Iwo Jima and, and that there was no possible way that she could tell whether or not this was her boy, that this was Harlan. But Belle was sure, she was certain. And as she made her way back to the kitchen, she simply said, I know my boy. Even after the man in question was identified later on as Harry Hans Hansen, she remained unmoved. She was certain, she knew that that was her son. 
Sadly, the family soon received word that Harlan had been killed in action on Iwo Jima. But in 1947, after additional testimony came down the line, they received word of a correction. Henry Hansen was not the man in the picture. He wasn't there that day. In fact, it was Harlan Block. Bell Block was hardly surprised. And she went on record saying, I know my boy. Christian, can you say, I know my God? I know my God. Like David, can you say, but you, O Lord, you are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. You are my God and my salvation. Listen, whatever your trouble, whatever you go through, if you're in trouble now, hold on to this psalm. If you're not in trouble right now, guess what's coming? Trouble. It's coming. So remember this psalm. Hold on to it. In every part of this psalm, whatever your trouble looks like today or tomorrow, every part of it applies to you. It applies to you. Whether you're suffering as a victim of sin and circumstance or as the result of your own sin against God, don't forfeit the privilege of seeking the Lord in your time of trouble. Don't forfeit that privilege. Don't give it up. If you repent, he will forgive. We began our time today with a scripture reading from Jonah 2. Was Jonah living a life of obedience when he found himself in the belly of the fish? Was he doing what he ought to do? Did he have any right to cry out to the Lord in that moment? And yet he still cries out. And like David, he declares the exact same thing that David declares here in this text. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. God is the one who owns salvation. It belongs to him. Not us, not governments, not kings, not mobs. It belongs to the Lord. So don't believe the lie that God won't help you. And don't toss and turn the next time you can't sleep. Rather, turn your troubles into trust and go back to bed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the many laments of Scripture, for these powerful emotional expressions of grief and pain and sorrow that we can all resonate with, that we can all relate with. Lord, as your chosen people, as those who have been set aside, that have been saved and sanctified for your holy purposes, God, I pray that we would never, ever toss and turn and worry and fret or go without sleep because we don't know what tomorrow brings. But may we rather follow this prescription that we see here in Psalm 3. Lord, may we turn our eyes to you. May we take them off of our circumstances, off of our problems and our troubles, and say, but you, O Lord, are a shield all around me. You are my glory. You are the lifter of my head, and you are my salvation. God, Thank you for such great promises that we see in your word. Thank you for examples like David, a man after your own heart who you loved, who repented of his sin and found forgiveness in you. Lord, I pray that if there is anyone here today who has not bowed the knee to King Jesus, that you would work in their hearts, that the power of the gospel, which is the power of salvation for all who believe, that it would grip their hearts today, that they would confess their sin, that they would repent of their sin, that they would cling in faith to the cross of Christ as you have poured out your wrath against sinners upon him as he stood in our place so that all who would believe and trust in him for their salvation, they would be saved. God, work in hearts today. And for those of us who have been saved, Lord, may we never, ever allow our sin to separate us from you to the point where we forfeit the privilege that we have of crying out to you. May we seek repentance. May we ask for forgiveness. May we confess our sin quickly. 
and then rely on you, our protector, our king, our sovereign God, for everything else. We love you, and we commit all these things to you in your name. Amen.